Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I want to remind my Patreon supporters that in tonight's live salon, our guest will be Richie Obelnik, who you may know better as Eric Taub. Richie, or Eric if you prefer, is a pioneer of the Ibogaine movement and will be with us tonight to answer questions about this important psychoactive medicine from Africa. And if, like me, you don't have a lot of experience with this medicine, well, then tonight's conversation will be a great place for you to ask your questions from an expert, and I hope to see you there. By the way, uh, if all goes well, I'll record tonight's live salon and podcast it here as a Salon 2 track. As you know, I've been numbering the Salon 2 podcasts a little differently from the main track because these recordings are coming from our fellow saloners and aren't solely my work. And I think of these live salons that same way because, well, everybody there has a chance to join in the conversation. And before long, I'll begin podcasting a major series of Salon 2 programs. These programs are being coordinated by the Lakey Sisters, from whom we have already heard one of their programs, and this series is going to feature a major work of psychedelic literature. It's the novel that's titled The Rose of Paraclesis on Secrets and Sacraments, and it was written by Leonard Picard. Now, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you already know who Leonard is. Well, because he's the man that the United States government has sentenced to life in prison for the crime of just preparing to manufacture LSD in an abandoned missile silo. Leonard is actually one of the most visible of the many political prisoners being held in the so-called War on Drugs, and while in prison, he has written this splendid novel, which we intend to pass along to you in the form of an audiobook and associated commentary. You'll be hearing a lot more about this in the weeks ahead. Now, uh, getting on with today's program... I feel that I should apologize for getting it out a bit late because, well, what happened was I digitized that last tape in the Terrence McKenna workshop that I've been podcasting recently, but after I began editing it, I discovered that the original tape had been recorded over. While we were supposedly listening to the final hour of that workshop, well, it was only the first few minutes on the tape, and after that, somebody had recorded the previous tape over it. <laughs> so it looks like that final session is lost forever. But not all is lost because, well, I dug through that box of old cassette tapes and I found two more talks of his that I don't think have been posted before. While I'm not completely sure about the details of this talk, it appears to have been given around May of 1990. So, without any further ado, here again is the one and only Terrence McKenna. Well, I, I want to uh, explain a little bit about why I should even be sitting here talking to you and, and uh, why I'm qualified to do that, if I'm qualified to do that. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and partner and I uh, organized land that we owned in Hawaii as a nonprofit that could be turned into a botanical garden. And this is a unique botanical garden in that our focus is on psychoactive plants and plants with a history of shamanic usage. And even though we're a very modest effort, it turns out we're the only people in the world, as far as we can tell, 
who are actually doing this, um, you're all aware of the speed at which the rainforests of the world are being cleared. But what is never mentioned is the even more rapid disappearance of folk knowledge about the rainforest. I'm an optimist and I believe that eventually the rainforest clearing will be halted and there will be huge preserves in the tropics. But nothing will halt the homogenization of human knowledge and the abandonment of localized ancient folkways in favor of the kind of generic kinds of understanding that operate in the world cultural market. In the next 30 years, it's going to be the last opportunity that we will have to preserve 50, 100,000 years of folk medical knowledge relative to the tropics. So this is the real-world political work that my wife and I do, and Kat runs it on a day-to-day basis. I'm its spokesman, but she does the the grunt work and the organizing and organizes the expeditions and the collections. If any of you are of a a philanthropic bent, this is... uh, something I would be interested in discussing with you on our own. Uh, For the rest of you, I simply want to inform you that this kind of effort is going on. If you find yourself in exotic uh, foreign countries or planning to travel to remote tribal areas, uh, we would be interested in signing you up to help in our collection efforts. I believe that the collecting and preserving of these psychedelic and psychoactive plants is equivalent to the preserving of ancient manuscripts that was done in the Dark Ages. Preserving things we don't understand toward a brighter day when society will create an open enough climate of inquiry that these things can actually then be looked at. Well, so much for that. As far as uh, my qualifications, they're pretty minimal in the academic realm. I have a degree in conservation of natural resources from the University of California at Berkeley, which is a little like saying, uh, you know, I have a degree in tap dancing from the University of Antarctica. (laughs) But from the time that I was a very small child, I was uh, an edge runner. And I don't know why, but uh, this turned out to be a very fruitful natural style for getting ahead in the world. The exploration of edges, the oldest books, the forgotten countries, the unpronounceable islands, that sort of thing. And I was a rock collector and a butterfly collector and an amateur rocketeer and all these things. And when I analyzed these pursuits of mine, it was the pursuit of a certain flash of iridescence, the iridescence that you get when you break open ore-bearing rock or the iridescence that you get when you capture certain kinds of butterflies in tropical environments or the kind of iridescence that you get when you mix potassium perchlorate and sugar in a uh, hot sauce pan and ignite it. In other words, pushing out at the edge of the permissible, at the edge 
of the probable looking for a certain something, a scintilla, a spark, a possibility. And as I matured and became a a goggle-eyed chess master and hell-on-wheels science fair competitor, I came to understand, I came to assimilate the methodology of science, which is not particularly uh, at the top of its uh, share of the market at the moment. But I assimilated that, and I discovered the second part of the method that has been so serviceable to me, which is the good stuff can take pressure. The good stuff doesn't have to be looked at sideways. In other words, if something is real, you can stress it. You can test it. It doesn't require belief. This was, the, for me, a great intellectual watershed. The understanding that belief of any sort was a kind of encumbrance to the relationship that I was attempting to have with what I naively called reality. That was the thing. And eventually, uh, this strategy of edge running led me into psychedelics. I had had the good fortune to make my way to the University of California at Berkeley. So I was at, this was 1965, I was at ground zero of the cultural, impending cultural implosion. My good fortune. But at that point, discovering psychedelics, I realized that... uh, Not only the tired cliché that everything you know is wrong, but also that whatever is true cannot even be imagined. And since I discovered this on my own, I don't feel under any kind of constraint not to talk about it. I wasn't initiated by any secret society. Nobody swore me to silence. So I seem to have gotten through a number of filters. I feel perfectly empowered to talk about this thing which I think nobody is supposed to talk about. And I don't mean the legal side of it or the social side of it. I mean, that barely interests me at all. Who cares? I mean that the world we are living in is Uh, not at all as the linguistic structures we have inherited would have us have it. That we are actually living inside some kind of artificial construction which is uh, potentially permeable by human understanding, but to date has not been. We have been very much on the surface of things. The question that I raise constantly with myself, and it's interesting to talk about it with other people then, is, you know, just what is going on? (laughs) Just what do you think is going on? I mean, have you backed off from it? Do you have a grip on the uh, outlines of the problem? Or are you just sort of adrift inside the context? 
Because the situation is mighty peculiar, friends. What we have here is a kind of creature made out of information, apparently loose in an environment of meaning, on the surface of a planet upon which gene swarming is happening. And uh, all of these things, gene swarming, self-reflection, production of epigenetic codes like writing and this sort of thing, have no precedent. We don't go out and collect other forms of these things. They all are generated out of us. We, as moderns, as inheritors of Cartesian rationalism, look out at a universe that our science tells us is energy, matter, conservation of mass and momentum, and yet we never notice the peculiar enigma posed by the question, who's looking? Who's looking? How is it possible that the coextensive continuum of apparent being is coordinated inside organism into an experience of ongoing becoming with which we have some kind of identification. This is very weird. It should provoke more comment than it is. (laughs) I, I think it's fairly easy to compress the entire history of philosophy into the process of achieving age eight. By age eight, most of us, if we have the time on our hands, are able to carry out an analysis of being where we reach the conclusion that everything is events in the nervous system. You know, I mean, we understand this. We understand that light being reflected from objects then creates neurochemical events which reconstruct an image of the outer world. So we, we pay lip service to this idea that everything is a neurological event. But in fact, we have a very strong faith in the so-called three-dimensional Newtonian world. And yet, this is the faith that can be deconstructed on psychedelics. It shows us something which we give lip service to, but which is very hard to raise to the level of a felt experience. And that is that the world is made of language. It is made of language. This is not you know, something you say at sales meetings to boost sales. This is bedrock, as far as I can tell. And everything else is unconfirmed rumor. Well, then, you know, what is language? What is it if the world is made out of it? Well, then this becomes dicey because the tool for describing language is language. And, you know, you don't have to have graduated to logic three to understand that there's a self-limiting program involved in something carrying out a complete description of itself. It's a tautology. It can't be done. Does that mean, then, that language can only be understood from the vantage point of the unspeakable? I think so. We didn't know what that meant. We thought the unspeakable was like silence. That isn't what it is. 
The unspeakable is the ground of language. Well, how did we get into this situation? This is part of the question that relates to what is going on. How did we get into this situation? If you, if you came in a flying saucer and observed the earth, I think you would come to the conclusion that the, the breakout process or the anomaly in the mix is the human element. Animals of all sorts have existed on this planet, integrated into all kinds of ecosystems. And only in the phenomenon of human beings do you get this breakout away from genetics, away from the raw transmission of hereditary characteristics and into a whole new realm of being, a whole new ontos of possibility, which is epigenetics, codes, self-generated, language, song, dance, uh, painting, chanting. All of these things are forms of expression, but they are not genetic expression. What seems to be happening on this planet, at least, and in the universe generally, is a conservation of complexity, a speeding up of process and a conservation of complexity. Now, the ordinary theory of evolution is thought to be a theory that is confined within the domain of biology. It's a theory of how one organism supersedes another and there is advancement of form. But scientists are very nervous when you extend the concept of evolution to the inorganic universe at large. And yet, if you think about the life of the universe, as we all have learned it from Carl Sagan, you know that we all began as an infinitely small, dense, hot dot. But that didn't last long because there wasn't much going on, because there was so much energy that no arrangements could be made. <laughs> then there was a massive explosion and a tremendous drop in temperature. And at that point, atomic, uh, you know, free atoms, electrons could settle into orbits around atomic nuclei and you get atomic chemistry, which condenses into stars made of pure hydrogen and helium, which cook out iron and carbon you get more complex chemistry. With more complex bond possibilities, this allows the molecular bond to form for the first time. Suddenly, an entirely new universe of possibilities springs into being. And at the end of that cascade of possibilities is organic life. Organic life then contorts and conserves information and folds it in upon itself and replicates it and distorts it and you get more and more advanced forms of higher plant organisms, plants and animals. Ultimately, this process ushers into human beings with culture, electronic culture, and then finally the cataclysmic connectedness of the 20th century. From a psychedelic point of view, this is all a connected process. You see, the Newtonian scientific thing lifted human beings out of the center of the cosmos properly and set them off to one side. Small planet, small star, small galaxy, to one side. 
And that may have been a refreshing dose of realism to the monotheistic ego that had been created out of the medieval eschatology. But in a way, it's unsatisfying because the felt presence of experience has a centrality to it. I mean, we do feel that we are important, at least to ourselves. Well, can we create a metaphysic that is true to what is observed of the universe and true to our intuition. Yes, we can if we see history as the inheritor and the culminating process of all these other processes. And then if we see ourselves installed at the cutting edge, at the leading edge of history, as its major players and actors. And this is, in fact, the situation. I mean, have you ever stopped to consider how many people didn't screw up for you to be sitting here tonight? You know, your ancestors, how many times there were opportunities for, you know, the saber-toothed tiger to strike back or the hunt to fail or the fever to sweep through or the breast to go dry or how many times were there opportunities that somebody had their eye on the ball, somebody paid attention. You are the inheritor of that process. There's a lot of talk in the New Age, Shmage, about the Tao of the ancestors or Tao. Well, what does the Tao of the ancestors mean except that you are the rearranged genetic component of your particular genetic stream and your grandfather, your great-uncle, your grandmother, your great-aunt had ways of doing things. Pitting peaches, planting beans, trimming flank steak. That's the Tao of the ancestors, that there's a way to do things. And that when you do things that way, that is the appropriate way for you to do it. And you can tell it's the appropriate way because there is very little energy loss. That's what the Tao is. It is appropriate activity. And from a psychedelic point of view, when we analyze the state of the world, what we see is not that there are many problems, sexism, racism, air pollution, monotheism, you name it, not that there are many problems, but that there's really just one problem. The problem is, well, it can be defined many ways, but it's basically that we are inappropriate to ourselves. We are ill with ego. We have a narcissism that we cannot put down. Why? Why, given what we know about evolution and how it tries to smooth the way, why do we have a maladaptive relationship to reality? It doesn't make any sense. Well, here's why. It's nobody's fault, first of all. It has to do with the fact that the monkey is lagging behind the dynamics of the planet. Three million years ago, we were happy in the trees of Africa, in the canopied 
tropical equatorial forests of Africa. And in the way of planets, there are long cycles of drying and, and aridification. And a cycle like that began in Africa. And these arboreal primates, which had a social form and a complex kind of pack signaling, uh, they were fruititarian and highly specialized at it, came under environmental pressure because of the retreat of these, of these rainforests and their replacement by grasslands. When an animal comes under environmental pressure like that, it has to expand its diet or face extinction. It's just that simple. Now, to my mind, the great unexamined uh, dynamic of evolutionary theory is diet, especially when we discuss human evolution. Why? It works like this. These monkeys are under pressure to expand their diet. Therefore, they must experiment with new kinds of food. When you experiment with new kinds of food, you are opening yourself up to exotic chemicals and mutagenic compounds present in plants in your environment. Plants produce these things to ward off predation, discourage insects, attract pollinators, various reasons. But chemically speaking, the very compounds which are pheromones, sexual attractants, or poisons, are also in the chemical families that impact on human physiology. Alkaloids, steroids, hormones, uh, neurotransmitters, and yes, psychedelic drugs. These things are all present in the diet. Well, uh, human, the, the peculiar way in which we differ from the other primates, I mean, speaking generally, is that we are, have what are called neonatal characteristics. The persistence of infantile characteristics into adulthood is typical of human beings. This is why we have this extremely long period of uh, semi-non-functionability, up to age 16 or something. You're not fully all there, you know. This is incredible for an animal. This means we remain, we're almost like uh, uh, kangaroos. You know, when the kangaroo is born, it's an eighth of an inch long. It lives in the mother's pouch. It's actually out of the body in practically maggot form. And uh, our hairlessness and uh, our large skull and uh, numerous characteristics are neonatal and were probably induced by mutations, alkaloids and things like that in the diet. The one I want to particularly call to your attention is psilocybin because here is the scenario of human emergence and I defy anyone to top it. This is how it happened. Here's how the boar ate the cabbage or something. Part of this pressure to expand diet had to do with abandoning vegetarianism and turning on to the fact that there were huge amounts of protein on the hoof in these grasslands in the form of ungulate mammals that were developing in the same environment. 
So these pack-hunting primates began to take an interest in these ungulate mammals and, you know, hunt them, club them, and, or, or predate on uh, carrion kills by lions and that sort of thing. And when they did this, of course, if you follow herds of ungulate animals, you see a lot of what the president calls deep doo-doo. And in this, you encounter mushrooms. The technical term is coprophilic, dung-loving, somewhat like the president. And uh, these dung-loving, coprophytic mushrooms contain psilocybin. Well, if you've ever been in the veldt environment or in any environment where this, these pasture mushrooms are happening, they're extremely noticeable in the environment. I mean, I have seen them in the Amazon the size of dinner plates, and you can see them, you know, from 300 yards away in a pasture. Also, in Kenya, I've observed personally pack-hunting baboons, and what they're into are grubs that locate under cow pies, and so their technique is to run around flipping over cow pies and picking up weird things and smelling and tasting them. This means that the mushroom is planted directly in the evolutionary path of these evolving primates. They're moving onto the grasslands, they're following the herds, they're looking for the game kills, and they're encountering mushrooms and testing them for uh, food value. Okay, very simple three-step process. When you take psilocybin in very small amounts, amounts so small that subjectively you don't notice anything, Roland Fisher did tests in the 1960s and he showed using rats and later graduate students <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that small amounts of psilocybin actually increase visual acuity and he gave people eye tests a particular kind of eye test where there were two parallel bars and by turning a crank out of sight of the test subject, you could deform these bars so they were no longer parallel, and the subject would push a button when they felt the bars had moved out of parallel. No question, the very slightly stoned people could pick this up much faster than a, an ordinary person. Okay, you don't have to be an evolutionary biologist to know that if there's a plant in the environment of a hunting animal that will improve the visual acuity of that hunting animal, then those animals that admit that into their diet are going to outbreed the other individuals who don't admit it into their diet because they're going to have more success at hunting, which means more food, which means more uh, babies and more successful adults, so forth and so on. First step. Second step slightly more psilocybin. Now what happens? Psilocybin is an indole hallucinogen like LSD, Bogaine, um, so forth, uh, beta-carbolines, DMT. Okay, it's a CNS activator. That means that it is going to cause CNS arousal. Forget CNS. It's going to cause arousal. <laughs> Forget arousal. That means erection. Okay, so in the mid-range dose on psilocybin, it's causing 
an interest in sexual activity. Increased, generalized arousal, but it's an itch you can't scratch and you usually settle down to getting laid. I mean, this is just how arousal works. Okay. So then, at slight, and now what is this doing? This, it's like a, it's like a, 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 an aphrodisiac or something in the food chain of this animal. Well, what is it doing? It's causing more of what primatologists call uh, successful copulations. And these successful copulations are happening in the presence of an increased food source because of the increased visual acuity. So you see what is happening. The factors are beginning to snowball that will favor the the, the outbreeding of the non-mushroom-using part of the population. Well, then at still higher levels of psilocybin ingestion, you get the full-blown psychedelic ecstasy, which even we as moderns, with Heidegger and Husserl tucked under our arm, we don't know what the hell's going on. We are as primitive in the face of it as people in the Magdalenian were. So... But it introduces the notion of a transcendent other, a tremendum, a translinguistic reality, the experience of the logos, the unspeakable, in other words, religion. So here's a three-step process. Increased success in hunting brings increased food supply, which brings increased sexual activity, which brings higher birth rate, which is all happening in the ambiance of this tremendous psychedelic experience. Now, I think that that alone is sufficient to make the case that it must have been indole alkaloids in the early human diet that catapulted us into this extraordinary relationship to language and cognition that we have. But there's more to it than that because we just have been glossing this thing that we call the psychedelic experience. After all, what is it? Well, then when you try and go into it and say, what is it? Uh, I think that, that a, a number of issues are coming together that may not have appeared to be related. The hysteria over drugs in our society, the apparent approach of the end of all life as we know it on this planet, and our political wrongheadedness. Well, now, what does all this have to do with a hypothesized relationship of proto-humans to a food source in the Welts of Africa a million years ago? Well, I just prefer this kind of big-picture analysis. That's <laughs> and and what I think happened is that if you if you know anything about monkeys. They are not very pleasant creatures. Uh, they have a, a male dominance hierarchy, what's called an alpha male primate, and he kicks everybody around and keeps the good women for himself and the good food and so forth. And so, As we look at lower primates, it's a fairly discouraging picture. But I believe that shamanism in its heyday was, you know, not the feeble curing of psychological ailments that we grant uh, uh, to shamanism on the borders of the third world today, but that it was a deeper understanding of nature and humanity than we possess right now. 
and that what the high shamanism of the Paleolithic did was it put us into a quasi-symbiotic relationship with the mind of the earth, if you can grok this, that there is actually a chemical network of communication, that the... The earth is a living organism, yes, but it's also a reflected-minded organism. And this is beyond what Lovelock and all those people are willing to say. This is not based on science. This is based on the experience of meeting the management on the other side of science. (laughs) The earth is some kind of conscious intellecty, and it is managing itself toward an end. We are embedded in a plan. We are not a breakaway mutation. We are a desperate response to something. And what was going on back there in the high Paleolithic was uh, on a very regular basis, human beings in this nomadic hunter-gatherer situation were taking mushrooms together as a religious ritual They were dissolving boundaries. This is what we experience when we take psilocybin. The generalized description of the psychedelic experience is it dissolves boundaries. And the main boundary that it was dissolving and that it does dissolve is the ego. Psychedelics are an inoculation against selfishness at the expense of group values. And it is selfishness at the expense of group values that is shoving us toward Armageddon. These pastoralist, mushroom-taking, goddess-worshipping, equilibrium, partnership societies were the solution to the human problem. They had achieved a kind of dynamicis that we can only envy. They were fully-minded. Their thoughts were deeper than our thoughts. Their poetry was richer than our poetry. They didn't build things. They didn't have a demonic relationship to matter. Because, because, every new and full moon they were taking mushrooms and jumping on each other in a big heap and this was making it impossible to trace male paternity And so care of children was generalized. It was a group phenomenon. And so then what happened? If it was so wonderful, what the hell happened? (laughs) Well, again, no blame, no blame. What happened was that the very processes that created this perfect world, which were a process of gradual drying of the African continent to force these monkeys out of the trees and into this grassland, symbiotic, pastoral, nomadic adaptation. That drying process continued. And the grass dried up and the water holes got further and further apart and the mushroom festivals were no longer held every Saturday night. They were held once a month and then at the solstices and equinoxes and then at the solstice and then every ten years and then never... And the other thing that was going on was there was frantic pressure to try and figure out how to preserve the mushrooms since they were so hard to get. And the only solution anybody could come up with was honey. 
and honey is a material which left to itself in that kind of an environment will turn into mead and mead is an alcoholic beverage and the difference between a psilocybin cult and an alcoholic beverage is the difference between church and North Beach <laughs> so <clears throat> so around uh Around 9,500 years ago, it, it wouldn't work in Africa anymore. It was insupportable. And these people began moving out into the Nile Valley and what is now Palestine. And if you know anything about the archaeology of the Nile, you know that before this, the stratigraphy is basically empty. He, then, he slays the cosmic bull. Then... He goes to the shaman figure, Enkidu, and against his will, he puts big pressure on Enkidu to go with him into the wilderness, and there they cut down the tree of life. This is what they do. This is what Gilgamesh does. This is the first act of the first man in the first moment of the story of Western civilization, out into the woods to chop down the tree of life. Meanwhile, the Semite, their story is the story of history's first drug bust. You know, this woman finds this plant. The caretaker of the garden has put up signs which say, don't eat this plant. She eats it and the shit hits the fan. And I recommend to you a thorough reading of Genesis. It's astonishing what's going on there. Here we have Yahweh after this little contretemps has taken place, Yahweh, he's wandering around in the garden. He speaks, don't ask me to who. He speaks and he says, if they eat of the fruit of the tree of life, they will become as we are. This, this can't fly. So the issue is, everybody perceives the issue the same. Adam, Eve, and Yahweh. The tension is over the fact that there would be equality if the plant knowledge were fully available. And it's clear that it comes through the woman. I think that women were the custodians of language. I think language was a woman's mystery. Uh, the, again, looking at it from a point of view of evolutionary stress, the evolutionary stress on men was to be the stoic, silent hunter to be able to hold a hunting position in a game drive for hours and women stayed closer to home because they had children hanging off them they had a different physical constituency and they were in charge of the gathering part of the hunter-gatherer equation well gathering is about is essentially the art of description it's the small bush with the silver leaves at the bottom of the arroyo near the black rock with the gray scratch across it. You, know, you have to have your language skills down. You have to be able to describe hundreds of plants and their parts and where they're located and how to separate them and how to prepare them and what part of year is important and so forth and so on. And this repertoire of detail was what women had and what created then their power in this goddess uh, mushroom ambiance. 
the thing that I've learned in studying history and living life is that the thing that makes you happy eventually makes you unhappy. Everything flows. Nothing lasts. I mean, this is a hard truth to come to grips with, psychedelic or otherwise. Nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. Not even yourself. And what failed for the archaic world was the cleverness of women evolved into the potential understanding of agriculture. They had this vast repertoire of understanding of plants, but when they abstracted it and generalized it, they realized, we don't need this. We just need to utilize what we know about these six plants and forget all this other stuff and lean hard on these six plants. Well, but then everything is... uh, You know, you're not gathering now. You're setting plow to the earth. You're wounding the earth. And, you know, from there to this moment, it's just the blink of an eye. It's that wonderful camera dissolve in 2001 where the bone is thrown into the air and as it comes down, it turns into a space station in orbit around the earth. The rest is history, as they say. History is the story of the cancerous and unchecked growth of the ego its institutions, its structures, its stratagems, its ploys. It's worked every single angle. And I I think that monotheism is appealing philosophically as a certain economy. One God, you know, that wraps it up nicely. (laughs) But, you know, you've got to be a little more subtle than that. Uh, Let's take a Jungian perspective for a moment. Our gods are the images that we collectively empower ourselves to emulate. And if our God is omnipotent, omniscient, never wrong, always right, utterly unforgiving, this is a jerk. (laughs) Who needs this? We don't need this. Our image of deity is pathological. Our image of deity is the image of the cancerously untamed ego. And until we uh, do something about this, we haven't got the prayer of a snowball in hell. Exhortation is not going to do it. And now time is running out. Time is running out. It was not for nothing that this psychedelic surge occurred in the 60s. This, the human story is not going to be allowed the luxury of being a comedy. You know what a comedy is? A comedy is when you've got no choice. This is going to be a tragedy because the cards are on the table. You know, if you drown because this boat is sinking, it's because you didn't bother to wander over and climb in the lifeboat. That's the kind of situation we're in. By analyzing the archaic context, which was the last sane moment this species ever knew, so what that it was 15,000 years ago? It's a blink of an eye. You know, we've been ill since then. Now let's fix it. The last sane moment we ever knew, 
And then comes the cascade of history. History is an absolute nightmare. And it can only be redeemed by us. This is this thing about the Tao of the ancestors. You know, did all these people get freezed to death and stomped on by mastodons and eaten by saber-toothed tigers and ravaged by disease so you can blow it? You with your Mercedes and your 48-foot television set? It can't be that lame, you know? So, so then, how does one, what is to be done, right? The Tolstoyan question. What is to be done? Is it a political program? Is it, what is it? I don't think it is that. I think that, that the way the psychedelic thing works is you must establish a level of authenticity in yourself vis-a-vis reality. And then you become a walking social catalyst, regulator, meme generator, whatever you want to put it. It's, it's authentic understanding without ideology. This is it. Psychedelics are not an ideology. Psychedelics are an experience. I mean, you can have the psychedelic experience without taking drugs. It's just that, you know, you have to drive your car a hundred miles an hour over a 300-foot cliff and live. <laughs> you know, and then you come out of that ready to talk turkey. <laughs> but, you know, <clears throat> we lose too many people that way. Because, you see, what we're in is serious denial. I mean, the, the capacity of the Western mind for denial of the predicament is just mind-boggling. I mean, here we are, calmly discussing. The clock is ticking, and we're sitting on a planet stuffed full of thermonuclear bombs, disease uh, delivery systems, crazo politicians, psychopaths at every organizational level, propaganda machine running wild, and we intellectuals calmly gather to again consult Tolstoy, consult this, consult that, try and figure it out. The level of denial is pretty incredible. And, uh, you know, I think we have to go back to the 60s to see why that's the case. It's because we're very much afraid. The issue around psychedelics, both, both collectively and personally, if you're doing them right, is surrender. You know, if you're doing them right, it scares you to death how much you do because you do so much that you lose control. That's the thing. Control is the issue, always and everywhere. And we've got this scene so controlled that you know we're on the brink of Armageddon behind control. How can it be very, very carefully deconstructed? Well, I think the first thing is we have to open a pipeline to the Logos. We have to reach the goddess mind behind nature. And this means following the classical prescriptions of shamanism. It's true what they say. What the shamans say is truer 
than anything we can say about them. In other words, it's not that they're putting it through a language filter or that they're epistemologically naive or some horse shit like that. That's not it. It's you who are epistemologically naive. And me, we have no idea what is possible in nature, in positions of courage and high intoxication. So the, uh, I see the whole 20th century as a very, you know, it's like trying to turn a battleship with an oar. It's very, very slow going. But with Freud and Jung, we get the discovery of the unconscious. I mean, they discover it through a spyglass at 900 yards, but they do announce that it's out there. And then, uh, you know, through surrealism, abstract expressionism, psychedelic drugs, so forth, we are now exploring this domain. We, the analogous cultural crisis is the uh, late 15th century, the 1490s. Printing was invented in Mainz in 1440. By 1492, the New World had been discovered. We, it's 1490. We need to go somewhere. We don't know quite where, but you can almost taste it. What it is, is that we, I think, are getting set to take flight into what has always been our destiny. We're special. We are not outside the plan, but we're in a loop of the plan that the rest of organic nature is not participating in. We are the hands of the planetary mind. And the technologies that we have assembled are for the purposes of the planetary mind. Surely it must sense the finite nature of the life of the planet and the star itself. We are a kind of strategy for moving energy around. Someone once said, animals are a strategy invented by plants for moving seeds around. Well, I think human beings are a strategy invented by nature for catalyzing natural process. Clearly, the whole planet is being sped up. We are preparing to depart for a dimension which can only be called the imagination. This is what culture is. 8,000 years ago, when we began to crowd into cities and build walls and define everything into grids and mandalas, that was the beginning of the excrescence of mental space. That's what we're living in. These are all ideas. This was just unorganized matter put through the mills and presses of design to create a world that reflects the world that is living on the other side of our foreheads, the world of our imagination. But it has always operated against a background of the laws of physics, you know, the strength of materials, the laws of gravity. You just can't build bridges with spans more than X or skyscrapers taller than Y. But in the imagination, wishes are horses, beggars ride. And this is the cultural dimension that we have a potential 
to create. I don't think that there's a way to manage this thing back down into the equilibrial pastoralism of 20,000 years ago. We burned those bridges. It's a real crisis. We will not recognize our grandchildren. The metaphor that gives me hope when I look at the world is the metaphor of birth. That must be what is happening. I mean, if you were suddenly to come around the corner of a building and encounter someone giving birth, the entire ambiance is of crisis, at least, if not alarm. I mean, pain is being felt, blood is being shed, anguish at high volume is being expressed. It's crisis. If you'd never seen it, how could you believe that this was an ordinary part of existence scripted into being as a necessary part of its happening at all? It it wouldn't take you like that. And yet that's what is happening here. The mother and the child have now reached the moment where they must be parted. If they're not parted, toxemia will set in. This is bad for the child, bad for the mother. I'm not comfortable with this. I don't like this Gnostic thing of leaving the earth behind in any sense, even if we just descend and become the size of grains of salt and live at the center of the earth or something. It still means we're going to leave everything that we know and love and understand behind. But nevertheless, you know, you reach these places in your life. The birth canal is the first one. Leaving home is the next one. And, you know, there are many leavings. It's just that this is a big one. We will never be the same. The earth will never be the same. And like the fetus, or the, yes, poised at the head of the birth canal, we don't know where we're going. We really don't see light at the end of the tunnel. And neither does the fetus. This is the surrender issue. It's going to get crazier. They, they were so relieved when the craziness stopped after October and November and December. But don't be fooled, it was just a, a hesitation. The craziness is intensifying and intensifying. I believe that the transcendental object that is actually causing the lower dimensional phenomenon which we call reality, that the transcendental object is coming tangential to the historical continuum, that that's what this is all about, that a hundred years from now, the earth will be empty of people. There won't be a one, not a one. I mean, the breeze will move the grasses. Uh, We will be gone. Where? Guess. Who knows? Here's hoping. We have to find the door because the place is filling up with shit. It's very simple. And there are many doors. Here's a door. Extinction. How do you like them apples? If you can't find any other door, nature will kick open that door and push you right through it. And yet, you know, we possess creativity on a scale undreamed of. 
We can find a way out. There's no problem. We have the technologies, the money, the resources. We have everything we need except the will. It's a mental quality lacking in us. The will to do it. The will to undertake planetary-sized projects. The will to make a plan that has a 20-year, a 50-year, and a 500-year benchmark. But we are going to have to very quickly cease our infantilism. And this brings me around to the fact that we are forever infantile if we do not avail ourselves of the psychedelic experience. It is on a par with sex. It makes my flesh crawl to imagine someone going from birth to the grave without ever having sex. Fortunately, life is scripted in such a way that few escape (laughs) this edifying experience, which most, if you question them around age 11, would seek to avoid. Well, The psychedelic experience is not made inevitable, except by death, if you insist on waiting that long. (laughs) But a, a mature exploration of life includes it because it shows you who you are. It gives you a conducted tour of the captain's quarters. You may not have even known the captain's quarters existed. Now, how much is your ignorance worth to you? We need to eliminate the unconscious mind. This is really what it comes down to, folks. We cannot, in an era of 30-minute delivery of thermonuclear weapons from anywhere to anywhere, we do not have the luxury of carrying around with us an enraged bull primate. We cannot afford the luxury of the unconscious the hidden motive, the unexamined drive, the misunderstood uh, acquisition. The only way we can correct our cultural situation is by returning to an archaic style. This is what societies always do when they're slammed to the wall. When the medieval world blew up on itself, they returned to the classic models of Rome and Greece and created classicism. Classicism was created in the 15th century, for God's sake. There hadn't been a Roman around for a thousand years. When a society gets into trouble, it reaches back. We've got trouble in River City, big trouble. And we have to reach further back, further, further. Egypt won't do. The Nazis tried that. It won't do. We have to go back to this high archaic shamanism. And it's a hard swallow for individuals and society because we have made illegal this possibility because it is threatening to the dominance of the ego. The ego cannot coexist in the presence of a psychedelic religion or a psychedelic option. To my mind, this is the real issue behind this asinine drug war Nobody is going, we're not going to have an epidemic of heroin addiction or cocaine abuse if they legalize all this trash. That's ridiculous. But we are going to have 
people experimenting with psychedelics if all drugs are legalized. And that's absolutely terrifying to any establishment. You know, Marxist, George Bush, you name it. Anybody who's got a stake in order is appalled at the notion that someone would examine the understructure and undercarriage of the social engine. They're not interested in that. That's what has to be done. We need a thorough revisioning of reality, a thorough recommitment to a revitalization of religion based on experience, not on the cant of priests, but on an experience. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff in the spiritual marketplace, yoga and spirulina diets and colored lights and this and that. This is all, as far as I'm concerned, malarkey. I mean, these things do things. They move you around, altered states. My God, there are thousands of altered states. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, simultaneously shitting white with tears of joy streaming down your face because of the intensity of the proximity of the mystery. And uh, it's not difficult. It merely requires courage. Whoever went in to the ashram with their knees knocking with terror over what the next yoga session would bring. I mean, give me a break. It's, we're talking about the real thing, and you know what the real thing is. And uh, it's, it is assimilated by an act of courage and an act of responsibility and uh, an act of understanding. If we commit ourselves back to this archaic thing, to the mind behind nature, it is, uh, it is our... It is our home, our birthright. I think of the human race as someone who became separated from their mother's hand in a department store for 15,000 years. And we've been running from department to department. You know, is it tennis rackets? Is it bicycles? Is it sleds? What is it? Shoot it, chew it, this and that. No, no. We have to return to an authentic psychedelic shamanism that is rooted in our experience. If we empower our experience, we will cease to be the easily manipulated democratic masses. Do you know what democratic masses, do you know what kind of an insult that is to you and me to be called the democratic masses? Uh, If we empower ourselves and become reacquainted with the authentic dimension within us, then we won't put up with this crap anymore. This is what happened in the 1960s. People wouldn't put up with it anymore and they poured into the streets and raised holy hell. Scared everybody to death. Why wouldn't they put up with it anymore? Because they saw how shoddy, chintzy, and knocked together it is. We've been sold a pig in a poke. It's not worth having. These things don't make us happy. They don't bring us wisdom. They don't give us depth. It's an infantile, insulting, ridiculous society, except that it's holding a gun to the head of every living thing on this planet. Shamanism 
with courage and commitment is, as far as I can see, uh, the last best hope of mankind. Otherwise, there is no hope. In other words, I'm not saying this is easy or now you've heard me say this, so we're going to save the world. No, I give us a one chance in 50, and, but this is the only game in town. You know, Helmut Kohl isn't going to do it, not Gorby, nobody. Those guys are caught in their own definitions. Nothing changes people like psychedelics. And changing people is what we've got to do, ourselves and other people, fast. Thank you very much. We'll take an intermission, then I'll come back for questions. That's the good part. Thank you. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I wonder what you were thinking when, just now, we heard Terence say, and I quote, We really don't see light at the end of the tunnel, and neither does the fetus. This is a surrender issue. It's going to get crazier, end quote. He said that 28 years ago. And I'm sure that I don't need to remind you of all the craziness that has taken place since then. As a matter of fact, all of those historical events combined probably aren't going to add up to the craziness that we're now experiencing. Maybe we should take those old words of Terence's to heart and take off our rosy blinders and face up to what's actually going on in the world today. The great Irish poet W.B. Yeats foretold this era many years ago in his famous poem, The Second Coming, which reads, Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming? Hardly are those words out when a vast image of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with a lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of the indigent desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle, and what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Well, uh, (laughs) that's not exactly the holiday cheer that I had intended to pass along today. And I'll do better next week, but I do think that it's important right now to take off our blinders and not look to the next U.S. election cycle or the next leader of whatever nation you now live in to change things. Our ideas of how to best live in a global, civilized society is, uh, well, it's once again in flux. However, uh, one thing that Terrence said in this talk still sticks out in my mind more than anything else in today's lecture. And that is when he said that we won't recognize our own grandchildren the way things are going. Well, here's a way to truly grok that idea if you already are a grandparent. What if we died back in 1990 and then somehow returned today? Well, back in 1990, there was no World Wide Web. There weren't even cell phones, let alone web-enabled phones. 
Then throw in today's music and fashion culture, and, well, my guess is that you would most definitely not recognize the lives of your grandchildren today. However, uh, the fact is that you are actually here, and you most likely do recognize your grandchildren, because, well, you've been evolving along with them. Perhaps not as rapidly as they have been, but you do at least understand some parts of their world. So take heart, no matter what your age. We are now riding the crest of, well, perhaps the greatest wave of change to wash over this planet in the last thousand years. And as long as we keep our balance, this should be a hell of a great ride. (laughs) So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.